Welcome to House of David Ministries. I'm Pastor Eric Michael Teitelman. Join me as we learn about the rich heritage of our Christian faith. In each episode, we explore a unique topic that will deepen your knowledge of Christ and who we are as His people. In this episode, we're going to learn about three major challenges that the Apostle Paul faced in the first century church. Now, the church was already becoming divided. One group wanted the church to keep the whole law of Moses, even requiring the circumcision of the Gentiles for their salvation. Another group, predominantly in Rome, wanted to sever all affiliation with the Hebraic foundation of the church. And another group of Gnostics in Alexandria denied the bodily resurrection of the Messiah. So let's go back and look at the early church history. Now, the Apostle Paul is probably one of the most misunderstood characters in the Bible. And yet, he's viewed as one of the chief builders of the early church and the most significant purveyor of the gospel to the Gentiles. He even called himself an apostle to the Gentiles. But it was Peter who is considered Rome's first monarchical bishop, and from Peter, apostolic succession called monarchical episcopy would continue through every church generation. And so here is the irony. Both Paul and Peter were martyred in Rome. Both have shrines built in their memory. The Vatican, the center of the Roman church, is centered around a massive basilican church constructed above Peter's shrine. But Paul, on the other hand, is buried at the Basilica San Paolo. It was at that time when it was constructed, essentially was a malaria-infested plain that lay about a mile beyond the city. Now, Paul was raised in the rabbinic Pharisaic tradition. Some even claimed that he had sat at the feet of Gamaliel. His Hebrew name is Shaul, or in English, Saul, and he is considered one of the most scholarly men of his time. He also inherited an additional privilege, Roman citizenship. And this duality gave him a unique perspective and even a unique association. So Paul was able to enter the great halls of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, but he was also widely accepted among the Jewish communities scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Later, as Paul would turn his ministry towards the Gentiles, he would be accused of being a heretic for turning the Jewish people away from the law of Moses. And he was accused of also trying to turn the Hellenist Christians away from their Hebraic foundation. Some early Christian thinkers, such as Marcion, around 140 AD, used Paul's writings to help pull Christianity away from its Jewish roots. Others accused Paul of being anti-Semitic and a Jew-hater for helping to create this new religion called Christianity. And the religion was not only separate from Judaism, but at times, sadly, throughout history was also antagonistic and even hostile towards the Jewish people. Now, Paul's zealousness for Jewish law and the, the traditions placed him as a prominent leader of the Jewish resistance, one that would oppose the new rising sect of Judaism called Yeshua followers. It wasn't really until later in Antioch, which was the capital of Syria, that Paul and other believers would be called Christians. Now, Paul was powerfully transformed on his way to Damascus, where he was intending to persecute Jewish Christians who lived there. And this is where Paul's conflicts began. One between the strict adherence to the law for Jewish believers 
and the other for Gentiles who are now being saved through their simple faith in Christ. Jews living in and around Jerusalem and Judea were by and large Aramaic-speaking, while many living outside Judea and Samaria spoke predominantly Greek, which was the international language of the time. And the Greek way of life was called Hellenism, and this also began to spread from Asia Minor into the Middle East under the conquests of Alexander the Great. And many of the Jews living in the Diaspora had assimilated into certain aspects of Hellenist culture. We see this in the story of Hanukkah, which took place between 167 and 160 BC, and it reveals the early division within Israel between the Jewish aristocracy in Jerusalem and the priestly zealots. Now, one group was growing more comfortable and complacent with the Greek culture and economic prosperity, and the other clung to the theocratic traditions that had been handed down from Moses to Aaron. In the end, the zealots won, although probably only for a season. Because then again, during the Roman invasion of Israel in 63 BC, the Jews were once again divided. Some accepted Roman rule and were content living under Roman authority as long as they had the freedom to practice their Jewish customs. While others revolted against the Romans and led many thousands to be slaughtered and crucified. And these revolts eventually led to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and the near destruction of Jerusalem in 135 AD. Amidst all of this political turmoil was a small but growing family of Yeshua followers, and their message was very different as they followed the commandment of their teacher. Matthew 22, he said, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. These Messianic Jews often lived in isolation from their surrounding populations, choosing to dwell in this world but not to be conformed to it. Now, the early church in Jerusalem held strictly to the law and traditions of Moses, and for this reason, and because they largely blended into their surrounding Jewish populations, they remained relatively unscathed from persecution that came from the Jewish religious leaders. That was until the stoning of Stephen, who was a Hellenist. He was falsely accused by another group of Hellenists that he spoke to the Jews against observing the law of Moses, and this disturbance appears to have instigated the severe persecution of the Hellenist Christians by the Jewish leaders. Paul was one of them. Now, a growing number of these Christians were Gentile converts called God-fearers, and from the Hellenist populations that had occupied communities outside Judea and Samaria. And from historical accounts, these Hellenist communities appeared more receptive to the message of the gospel. With Paul's transformation, persecution ended, at least for a season, and peace and prosperity settled on the churches around Jerusalem. But there was a new conflict that entered the dispersed Christian community. Some were questioning, were these new Gentile converts required to adopt the law and traditions of Moses and become fully observant Jews, in other words, proselytes, to receive salvation? The answer, as we know from Scripture, was no. Instead, a few simple laws were given to the Gentiles. Abstain from eating blood or anything sacrificed to idols, do not strangle an animal, and refrain from sexual immorality. The giving of these laws did not suggest that the Gentile believers were granted permissibility to become lawless. However, following these laws also did not merit or condition their salvation. 
So let's be clear, neither Jew nor Greek is required to fulfill any law to receive the gift of salvation, except we are to receive the life-giving law of the Spirit. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, for the letter of the emphasis added, written law, kills, but the Spirit gives life. And this written law kills because it requires the work of man to save the soul, and not the Spirit of God to make him a new creation in Christ, where now God's law is written on our hearts and minds. So despite the decision to settle the matter of the law for the Gentiles in the Council of Jerusalem, Paul continued to face theological challenges within the churches. Now one group called Judaizers continued to press for the complete conversion of Gentile believers to the law of Moses. Another group, primarily again centered in Rome, desired to distance itself from its Hebraic foundation, and they eventually established a new Christian religion under the Roman Catholic Church that would be completely set apart from anything Jewish. And again, lastly, Paul faced conflict with Gnostic Christians who went around teaching there was no physical resurrection. Now, Paul recognized that God's plan of salvation was not dependent upon any human effort to either fulfill God's written law or the traditions of man, in other words, the works of the law. God's plan was exclusively based on his unmerited grace found in Christ Jesus. And in Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And still, Paul was unwilling to offend anyone for their adherence to any law or custom, unless, of course, it contradicted the Council of Jerusalem's decision regarding the Gentiles. Now, Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He said, To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. In other words, Paul really became all things to all men, that he might be able to save some of them. And we further read that Paul was not against the law, and he knew the law of God was perfect, and he taught Christians from the law. And he strictly observed the law himself when he was within the presence of his Jewish brethren. And so, for these reasons, Paul referred to the law as the tutor or the instructor that was intended to bring us, the Jewish people, to Christ. But the law was also God's commandments and statutes for Israel. Yeshua, of course, preached to the Jewish people from the law, affirming he never came to change it, but he said, I came to fulfill it. Paul, on the other hand, was specifically called to the Gentiles who were not under the law, and still he taught the Gentiles from the law of Moses. And for these reasons, Paul disputed against the Hellenists who tried to persuade the Jewish people to abandon the law of Moses. And so while the curse of the law was removed in Christ for those who believe in him, Israel's obligation to obey God's law remains eternally binding, not as a means of salvation but in the place of corporate responsibility and stewardship for the foundation of God's kingdom that will one day be established here on earth. And this is why Paul said in Romans chapter 3, he said, What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles, the written word, which included the commandments of God. So before Paul's transformation, it was his zeal for Israel and the Mosaic law that led him to persecute anyone who tried to pervert the law 
by drawing Israel away from it. And it said here in Deuteronomy chapter 13, But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. But now, after his transformation, Paul was defending the Gentile Christians from the heavy burden of the law that the Judaizers were demanding of them. For this reason, Paul was effectively torn between two worlds, one for the salvation of his people, the Israelites, who were still fiercely clinging to the law, and the other for the salvation of the Gentiles, who were just simply saved by their pure faith in Christ. So in response to the Judaizers, Paul wrote this letter in Galatians chapter 5, and he said, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. But then Paul began to observe another extreme and opposite phenomena developing within the church in Rome. And they went far beyond rejecting the law of Moses. They began to reject the very foundation of their faith that God had established through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This foundation that one day would be essential for establishing and building the kingdom of God here on earth. Ironically, while Paul wrote to the church in Rome, he never actually visited the church or had any part in its establishment. Historians actually disagree on the origins of the Roman church, although speculation is Hellenists who immigrated to the city originally established it. But one thing remains clear from Scripture. The church in Rome was rejecting its biblical foundation, and for this reason, Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 11, verses 17 through 21. This is what he said. If some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches, but if you boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. And then he goes on to say in verses 25 through 26, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. Paul was boldly appealing to the Romans not to reject the foundation of their faith, and he recognized that the kingdom of God belonged to Israel. But now God had also called the Gentiles into the kingdom, and God was giving them a place that had rightfully belonged to the Jewish people. Yeshua had warned the Jewish leaders for their arrogance and for their lack of faith when he said in Matthew 8, 
He said, many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so Paul warned the Gentiles not to boast or become arrogant against the Jewish people. And arrogance is exactly what the church in Rome did. By the second century, there was already a substantial Catholic church established in Rome, and the word Catholic means universal. Two other major centers at the time were Antioch, which is in modern-day Syria, and Alexandria, which is in Egypt. Arguments between Eastern and Western Christians surrounding observance of the Passover, as well as other heretical theologies introduced by Gnostic Christians, culminated in the First Council of Nicaea, which is actually in modern-day Turkey. This was held in 325 AD. This was the first ecumenical council of the Christian church. It's interesting to note that there was not one Jewish leader invited to this council. Emperor Constantine Augustus convened the council to settle these disputes within the church and to unite his empire under the banner of Christianity. His letter to this newly formed church and now more powerfully united Catholic church reads in part, as follows, and it is disturbing. He says this, First of all, it appeared an unworthy thing that in the celebration of this most holy feast, and he was talking about the Passover, that we should follow the practice of the Jews who have impiously defiled their hands with enormous sin and are therefore deservedly afflicted with blindness of soul. For we have it in our power, if we abandon their custom to prolong the due observance of this ordinance to future ages, by a truer order, which we have preserved from the very day of the Passion, which is the crucifixion of Christ, until the present time. Let us then have nothing in common with the detestable Jewish crown, for we have received from our Savior a different way. Still it would be incumbent on your judgments to strive and pray continually that the purity of your souls may not seem in anything to be sullied by fellowship with the customs of these most wicked men, Therefore, it was needful that this matter of the Passover observance, emphasis added, should be rectified so that we might have nothing in common with that nation of parasites who slew their Lord. He goes on to say, I myself have undertaken that this decision, in other words, to change the ordinance of the Passover to one Sunday per year, should meet with the approval of your wise judgment. Receive then with all willingness this truly divine injunction and regarded as truth the gift of God. For whatever is determined in the holy assemblies of the bishops is to be regarded as indicative of the divine will. And as soon, therefore, as you have communicated these proceedings to all your beloved brethren, you are bound by Roman civil law, emphasis added, from that time forward to adopt for yourselves and to enjoin on others the arrangement above mentioned. And so here we read of the Gentilizers, those who would take this extreme opposite position of the Judaizers, that Christ not only rejected Israel and the Jewish people, but that he intended to create for himself a new religion called Christianity, and also, therefore, a new family to replace Israel called the Church. Constantine and the Church in Rome were seeking to establish their own unique identity in Christ apart from the Jewish people. And Paul reminded them that it was they who were grafted in amongst the children of Israel and not the other way around. 
You see, the Gentiles were to become sharers of the same promises that were inherently and at one time exclusively reserved for the natural seed of Abraham, who are the sons of Israel. Notice also how Constantine took both the law of Moses and the Jewish traditions of the oral law that were celebrated in the Passover, and he created a new ceremonial law for the church that was suddenly bound by Roman civil law. This meant that breaking any law ordained by the church could be faced with civil penalties, and those penalties later included being put to death. Now, I find it interesting how the Lord warned the Jewish people that the prince of this world, who is Satan, would attempt to change God's law and his calendar. So how fitting is it that Satan would also attempt to corrupt the church into violating these two ordinances by separating the church from its Hebraic foundation? Because of the zeal of some today, some Messianic Jews and Christians, to see the church restored to its biblical foundation, the modern-day Hebrew Roots movement has also created some further divisions within the church. However, I believe God is going to restore his church, and he has promised to return for a bride that is without spot or wrinkle. Now, since the covenants and the law were given to the Jewish people, then the full restoration of the church is predicated on the restoration of Israel. And so for this reason, the Gentiles should seek after the things that now also belong to them. And these things should include the feasts of the Lord and the other sacraments that God ordained as holy. This restored church will be this, I believe, new expression that has never been seen in the earth. Paul calls it the one new man. Every tribe and tongue and people and nation redeemed by the blood of the Lamb will worship our King with a new song. This new expression will be established on a foundation of old. And this is why Yeshua said in Matthew 13, he says, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. So we are living in a period of what theologians call the dispensation of grace. This time of grace is simply God overlooking for a season the deficiencies of man living in a fallen world with corruptible bodies that are tainted by sin, and we have a sinful nature that we inherited from Adam. In Acts chapter 17, it says, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, who is Christ. So there is a time coming when the Lord will begin to move on his church and reveal through his spirit from deep within our souls a hunger and desire to see the kingdom of God established here on earth as it is in heaven. The eyes of the blind will be open, and the Lord has promised in Isaiah 29, he says, These also who erred in spirit will come to understanding, and those who complained will learn doctrine. And then in Isaiah chapter 2, the Lord says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days, and I believe that the latter days is the end of the age, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. In the latter days, again, I believe is before the return of Christ, that God will establish the mountain of the Lord's house, which is his church, 
on top of all the families of the earth, and I believe it will be established in Jerusalem, just as it was in the first century. And this so that the apostolic word of the kingdom that was decreed by Yeshua would go forth from Jerusalem to all the nations of the earth. And so I believe the church will come full circle, returning to her foundation, and this promise will be fulfilled before the Lord returns. We will begin to see the nations flowing up to Jerusalem to learn of God's law and his ways, and the church will teach the nations how to obey the law that was given to Israel to steward for a season until every nation comes under the law of God in the Messianic kingdom. Because it says Christ will rule the nations with a rod of iron and the government of his kingdom will rest upon his shoulder. When Christ returns to the Mount of Olives, which is opposite the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, it says in Zechariah 14, everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. The Lord has promised to restore his church and he has promised to bring us together as one people of God, one new man comprised of every tongue and tribe and nation and people. And this is his promise declared in Isaiah chapter 56, verse seven. He says, the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Amen. If you have enjoyed this teaching from House of David Ministries, make sure you subscribe to our channel and don't forget to visit our website where you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. We pray the Lord richly bless you and we look forward to having you join us again for our next episode.